0: Good morning. Get this set here. I was made to think a little bit while Andy was sharing that farmers kind of have the same tendency too, that we we care an awful lot about what's out by the road, maybe a little more than what's back in behind. But as we shared, you know, Jesus wants the whole of our life and the whole of our work for his glory. And that's something that we can definitely take to heart. We wish to continue through Philippians a bit this morning. We, We started out with the first chapter a couple of weeks ago. And I'd like to continue on into Philippians. The title for the message today is Koinonia, shoulder to shoulder. Koinonia, shoulder to shoulder. And I've, I've really appreciated the, the opening thoughts we've had already and just the, the value with the thought of, of a squadron going, going into battle through the clouds, through the fog. How valuable it is to be close together, close enough to help each other out, to be there for each other. And that's kind of the encouraging thought, or definitely is the encouraging thought, that Paul shares with the church at Philippi. And a little more of the backdrop of this church, it was founded soon after the Macedonian call. We know we sing a, call, sing a song, we have heard the Macedonian call today, send the light, send the light. Well, interesting how the Apostle Paul and several of the, of the disciples were in Asia and set on going into Asia Minor, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit restrained them from that forbade them to travel there, I, I wondered, first I wondered why, it's the gospel, does it matter where it's, where it's preached or the timing, apparently it does, they sought to go north I believe then and, and it was that evening that they were, the, the apostle Paul was given a vision in the night of a Macedonian man saying, come help us. Now I made a think as I read through that, it's in Acts chapter 16, we're not going to go there, but in Acts chapter 16 it tells a story of that, how a couple of weeks ago we saw on the, on the screens here, baptism was taking place in Kenya, and a few years ago I remember they were talking about the instigation of, I guess, our church's work there was someone calling out and saying, could, could you send some people to help, we need some, we need some help over here. And it's kind of similar to what took place there to a degree. Some think the the Macedonian man that Paul saw in his vision was Luke, literally. I don't know if it was or not. There's people that believe that. It's possible. That's where they met up with Luke was in in that region of Macedonia. But soon after that, that trip, that mission, Philippi is just inland a little bit. It was the chief city in that region. It was the first place in Europe where a church was founded. And there were members of diversity that, that were brought to the faith there one of which was Lydia. If you remember Lydia in the Bible, a seller of purple. And it's apparent that this is a woman that had her own business. She was probably wealthy and doing doing very well with what she had going on. There was also, very possibly, the Bible does not specifically state, but there was a girl that was delivered from a spirit of divination or an evil spirit about her. Acts 16 talks about how the apostles were there in the area in Philippi, and there was a little girl that followed along behind him saying, these are men of God which teach us the way of salvation. And that's a good thing, that was true, but she kept stating it over and over for days. And she was not like a herald that went before them, she was a, a soothsayer or a, one given of an evil spirit, and there were men that te- technically owned her, controlled her, and made money off of her prophet telling. And it was annoying Paul, it was, he was grieved, and he, he spun around and spoke to her, to the demon within, and said, in Jesus' name, he rebuked the demon to leave, and it did. And she was, she was delivered from that. And it's interesting to note, then, that the two men that controlled her certainly didn't delight in it because they lost their income from her. They didn't care one whit about the girl. But yet, I think about if, if that girl was delivered, she probably, probably was in the church. So here you had a, a servant girl who was a slave and Lydia who was a, a free woman that was affluent. After this experience, the, the Apostle Paul was put into prison and that's where there was a great deliverance, an earthquake and the, everything was, was opened up for them to leave and the, the soldiers and the guards were ready to take their own life because as Roman province, they were responsible for the life of their prisoners and since they were free, they would be killed And Paul said, no, we're all accounted for. And he kept them from from taking their own life and in a sense brought them to a saving faith. This is the members of diversity. The Bible says that those soldiers and guards were brought to a saving faith, them and their household. The diversity that was in the body there at Philippi. Do we not have some degree that same level of diversity in the body of Christ here? You might think, well, what church did Lydia go to in Philippi or the servant girl go to in Philippi? You know, Lydia probably went to the more prominent one with the biggest pipe organ and the servant girl was probably out in the country with one of those churches. No, there was, there was one church in Philippi, one, and all were a part of it. And as we look at this, the kononia, which means it's a Christian term for the, for the communion of believers, essentially. Communion of believers, even in the even in diversity different backgrounds, different gifts that we have for the blessing of the body of of Christ. And this Philippian church that had had taken off had sent a gift with one named Epaphroditus. And Paul responded with a letter of thanks and encouragement, and that's what this is. He wrote back a letter of thanks and encouragement to to the believers at Philippi, and that's what we read, these four chapters. I think the greatest gift that Paul had was Epaphroditus himself as was shared of our, our need for each other, our need for brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was in prison here. He was not hanging out in Rome at this time, enjoying a charcuterie bar, if that's how I pronounce that right, and, and uh, just a party. He was in prison. He was jailed here in Rome. And as we read through this first chapter, we find that he doesn't really know if he'll survive or not. In one place it says he has all confidence that he will travel to Philippi again. He really believes he will be, but he, he's one step back from certainty. And Paul lived his life out that way all the time. He didn't really know what was coming around the corner. Definitely his life could have been taken at about any time, and he was indeed martyred at Rome, but it was later than this time. This letter is encouraging. It, it speaks a lot about the joy that Paul has. I think it says that the concept of joy or rejoicing, it appears 16 times in these four chapters, quite a bit. Here, Paul, as he is imprisoned, he has joy because of the work of Christ that has taken place in Philippi and many other regions. His desire is that Christ be magnified. We know that verse 21 is a popular verse that's well-known. It's short when Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there's a lot in those verses, that, that life is in Christ, and for the Christian, when death occurs, it's, it's great gain eternally. But the verse that precedes that is just as powerful. And Paul writes, it says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He has a great expectation and boldness and hope. And this cast out shame. He's not afraid of shame. He knows that his Lord will not shame him. Even in death, he will not be ashamed. And to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul's wishing here—it's not—it's not to depart, not to escape gloom, doom, or just to be out. Paul was pretty beat up; he had been beaten, suffered shipwreck. He had a pretty rough life. He viciously followed Christ, and that's—that's that's why. But his desire was not so much to be out of this world as it was rather to be with Christ. He said, boy, you just feel his heart, I'm I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. But yet, nevertheless, it's more needful for you that I stay and remain to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. It's interesting to think that Paul did not walk step by step with Jesus Christ on this earth. Not at all. He persecuted the church intensely until he was converted. Paul writes of confidence in verse 25. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. 1 John 3:18 and 19. It is written, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Hearts being assured, we sing the hymn, Blessed Assurance. The confidence that he has in, in Christ. And Paul also seems fairly certain in the face of a very literal trial that he will be with the Philippians again. In any circumstance, Paul is filled with expectation for the work of Christ and for his church. As he's there in prison contemplating the fact that his life may very well soon end, he places value not in his own life, but in the fact that the work of the kingdom was continuing on, was growing, and he could see it, he could experience it, And that was a delight to him. It brought him peace. It brought him joy. As I've thought about Paul's circumstance and many other examples of his life, God is not glorified necessarily from us being delivered from problems or infirmities, but by being delivered in them. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he besought the Lord three times for to be removed And the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul spent time in prison. Paul spent time with thorns in the flesh. Yet when he seen the Lord work through it, how great was the glory of that for Paul to see and to behold. To be able to state to anchor his faith on the grace of God and its sufficiency. Paul was sold out for the kingdom. He's more concerned with others and building up the church body than his own physical well-being. His impending trial almost brings more weight in verse 27. and We'll start reading there. Verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read through chapter 2, verse 4 chapter 2, verse 4. We'll start with verse 27 in the first chapter. Paul says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you a salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Back up to verse 21, speaking of conversation, the Greek root word of this actually refers to citizenship. Where your home country is, what flag you fly. Let your citizenship, your conversation, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. A Christian nation upon the earth. The Christian people. Are we a patriotic citizen of the kingdom of Christ? Are we patriotic for the king, the eternal king, Jesus Christ? You know, Part of this verse also shares of accountability. It's a blessing that Paul can say that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I mean, hear of your affairs. It was shared earlier in the, the thought of the squadron flying. I, I took a lot, of, a lot from that. That was, that was a valuable thought. The one that was apart and away from the, from the formation said you, you don't fire a warning shot at him to get him back in line, but rather encouraged. They would be encouraged to, to come back into the folder for safety. That's kind of Paul's approach. It, it seemed like he he's speaks in a way that encourages the body. I know, I know that you will be Standing fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together, it's a way of putting into word what he feels like the church should be doing by the Holy Spirit in a way that is encouraging, that puts faith in them, that says, yes, I believe I believe that you will do this because of the common bond of the fellowship of the Spirit that we both have together, the Holy Spirit. And we know in our flesh there's, there's trouble with that, but here Paul seems to be very encouraging of the body. Commitment to the citizenship of the kingdom. Commitment comes first and accountability follows. You know, in today's world and culture, accountability can almost be viewed as a a negative thing, like a needed discipline to correct behavior. Here there's almost a proactive statement with it, a proactive example, as Paul seems to portray this in a positive, encouraging light, supporting the believers to the good, for for the good of the body. We'll find ourselves in a reactive state often, but it's better to be proactive. Paul was a proactive leader for the church. He didn't lead in a way that brought about fear or stress to the body, but rather encouragement as they saw this the Apostle Paul as one they could count on, rely on and one who looked to Jesus Christ. Read through verse 26 backing up one verse, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. almost seems like Paul could be saying this as being bold of himself. You'll rejoice that I come to you again, but the fact is they they wanted more teaching, they wanted more knowledge of the passages of Scripture that he was to share with them. I think Paul's visits to his churches were a little bit like the revivals that we have or communion meeting weekends a place to be edified, strengthened, and it's, it's, an, it's something we look forward to. And I believe that's what the Philippian body felt, longed for, and Paul shared with as well. Paul's leadership brought accountability to the body and growth. Verse in Hebrews 13, 17, this is we kind of read through in the Sunday school lesson, the, the calling of of obeying the commandments of the Lord. Hebrews thirteen seventeen is, is a verse that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who give account, so that they do this with joy and not with grief, for that will be unprofitable to you. And often as we read through that, I think, well, you know, as they keep watch over your souls, well, I'm responsible for my soul. That's kind of my business with the Lord. And indeed, that's true. We'll get into next week. We're challenged to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Yet there's a structure and order that's brought to the body, and accountability and responsibility are linked. Paul was given a responsibility to care for the needs of the church collectively, in a way. And there's a response from the body and appreciation for that, for the opportunity of growth. I think about Paul's life, and really, there wasn't very much about it that was Paul's glory. There's a poem written about his life that I like to share. The change that took place in Paul's life, how Paul of himself would not have been a very fit leader for the church. In fact, he was the greatest adversary physically the church knew on the earth until his conversion. A poem from Paul's perspective, I studied at the feet of a master. Gamaliel, we called him, the beauty of the law. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. And I could quote from memory the Holy Torah. A lot of I. That day that that Nazarene was brought to trial, it was on a Sabbath Eve, and there was an earthquake when he died. Just another passing preacher who came up from Galilee, a blaspheming troublemaker, we let him be crucified. Then I thought that I would hear no more about him. But his friends found his tomb empty and claimed that he rose from the dead. Then they said he walked among them with nail wounds in his hands, that king upon a donkey with a thorn crown on his head. His followers kept growing in great number, and the one they called Cephas mocked us in the judgment hall, Peter. And with the Greek name Stephen, we knew the Gentiles had come in. I cast my vote against him. He was stoned. I watched him fall. Then the friends of the Nazarene became united. And I became enraged and led his slaughter zealously. I found their secret places. They were beaten. They were chained. But some of them were scattered, justified in their fear of me. But like the wind that blows the scattered seeds, from Alexandria to Antioch, their congregations grew. So I went to the high priest for letters of permission to go to other cities to see my mission through. I was six days on a hot road to Damascus, and just outside that city in the middle of the day, a great unearthly light struck and overpowered me. Then prostrate on the hot road I was blinded where I laid. Then I thought I heard the rushing of great waters and a multitude of angels singing sweet and heavenly. And through the sound of wind came a voice so soft and kind meant for only me to hear, Saul, why persecutest thou me? As I lay there on the ground in my blindness, he asked me once again and suddenly the voice I knew. So finally I managed a trembling response, Who are you, Lord? But I already knew. I am Jesus of Nazareth, the voice answered. Arise, go to Damascus. On the street called Straight will be. A place where you will wait for my servant Ananias. He will open up your eyes. You will be a witness unto me. So now I live to serve my master, as zealous in his service as I once was as his foe. And keeping his command given on Damascus Road, I go to all the world, and I let the whole world know that the man in white appeared to me. In such a blinding light it struck me down, with its brilliance took away my sight. The man in white, in gentle loving tone, spoke to me, I was blinded so that I might see the man in white. That was the Apostle Paul. It took the touch of God to convert him, to change him. I think of his faith, I think of how much greater may be the faith of Ananias when he heard that Paul was waiting for him and that he was go, to go and minister to him in Damascus. It was known that Paul was going to Damascus, Saul at the time, to persecute the church, to, to destroy it. And there was a conversion, and then Ananias had to step out in faith and, and go directly to Paul and sit with him. I wonder if he really, really, truly believed or if he went with a little bit of hesitation But this is an individual some would have never seen as being a a leader in the church by any means in the early part of his life until the point of his conversion. Paul alone, even with truth out there in front of him, was not converted, but the touch of the Father's hand converted him. We think about the accountability and the responsibility linked. Romans 13 says, says that love is the fulfillment of the law, And in Galatians, this challenge, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We think of the diversity of people that are brought into the body of Christ, and this challenge given, if anyone overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The koinonia of, of Christ, the fellowship, the communion of Christ, that brings us to a place of humility, that we would have that spirit in us to restore and to build up. Even Paul himself said, follow me only so far as I follow Christ. Everyone in the body should be looking up to the Lord, as Paul did, and as the, the believers of the church did. Paul leads in a way that is shoulder to with shoulder with the believers. It wasn't Paul's church, it was Jesus' church. The church belonged to the king. As he writes this letter, he speaks of external conflicts as we get into the latter part of, of chapter 1. He encourages them to strive together, to be shoulder to shoulder. Verse 30, he uses the word conflict. And in the Greek of that word is agon or agon. And that refers to a place where athletic contests were held in the Greek. Well, what does that really have to do with, with conflict? That we as a body, we're not to be in conflict with each other, but rather conflict together, competing together. Gay plays on a soccer team, and I can't make every game, but the past week the coaches got together a father-son game. Uh, I made that one. I'm going to show up at that one. We had a good game, and later on that evening I was sharing with somebody. I said, you know, I, I don't really feel that sore after the game, but I was, I was surprised at how out of shape I was. I couldn't really get my breath. I used to be able to run a lot better than that, and I sure can't now. But my muscles didn't feel that bad, but boy, the next morning when I woke up, I was pretty sure I went sleepwalking and got hit by a truck and crawled back in bed and then woke up that way. And so when I look at agon as a word of agony and agonize, I get it. I totally get it, (laughs) especially when we're older. The thought of that conflict, it's more that we're in conflict together, is what Paul is sharing, against the external pressures against the body of Christ. As was shared in the opening, together in the squadron, together for each other. I thought of Nehemiah's wall as well. The each person, when the wall was being built, they were responsible for what was in front of them, responsible for their portion of the wall that they built together. And yet, if, if one person slacked off, what would happen? There'd be a hole in the wall. There'd be a weak spot. There'd be a problem area. They worked I think they had to work with the guard at watch because they were, there were other nations around that wanted them to be destroyed before they built the city. They didn't want, want the city built back, the enemies of Israel. And what did Nehemiah do? Did he pray? or do they arm themselves? They did both. They did both. The Bible says they prayed to the Lord and they also set a, a watch, a guard around. They armed themselves and they worked. That's the thought of the, of the church's presence in the face of external conflict, that we strive together, not in the competition against ourselves, but for ourselves. Just as in the soccer game, the goalie has a part to play the one going out trying to score a goal, and the other team has a part to play. The defenders have a part to play. We all have a part to play for the body of Christ and the kononia, the communion, the fellowship together, that we care for each other, that we care about each other, each other's souls and salvation, to assist and to serve, to exercise our faith. We'll get tired, just like I sure was. We might get tired in it, but we're called to exercise, to assist, and to serve from our faith the footnote of this portion of scripture talked about being steadfast that requires a purposing of the heart soul and mind for the kingdom's goal and glory Paul speaks in verse 28 of of outside adversaries and to not have fear of them and Paul lived this out he did not have fear of adversaries he says which is to them an evident token of perdition And we know that Paul himself was once an evident token of perdition. So there's always hope. There's always hope. We think of how Paul was changed and converted. There's always hope. The worst among us can become the greatest by the blood of Christ. Fear of adversaries is less than boldness in Christ. Boldness in Christ is is greater. Christ is greater than the fear of, of death or persecution. A songwriter once read, I've, wrote, I've read the back of the book and we win. It's that kind of boldness that we can have in Christ as we walk, as we strive together for each other. I've read the back of the book and we win. Victory is ours for the taking, for the having, because of Jesus Christ. Strength to bear trials comes from Christ, he who bore it all. We think of the trials that we can face in three terms. There's persecution, there's temptation, and general hardships. This is a time when persecution was pretty intense. And we know very little about that here. We really aren't physically persecuted at all. We might be picked on. We might have maybe offenses of feelings hurt in America, but it's it's not very intense. But where that's not very intense, oftentimes temptation is stronger because of affluence. That's almost worse, is it not? Or general hardships. I read somewhere that Americans are often the most unhappy people on the planet. And does that make sense? No, not really. Why is it that people in third world countries have more peace sometimes, or countries where they have less than what we do, have more peace? Why is it that that happens? Trials of persecution, trials of temptation, or general hardships, we have strength to bear these from Christ, he who bore it all for our sake. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six challenges us, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's a part of the value of the cononia of, of believers, the communion of, of believers in the church body. In the shared conflict, Paul shares about the fruit and the joy of the growth, growth process in the Christian life. As we move into chapter 2, we go from the, the thought of external conflicts to the thought of internal conflicts. How internal conflicts can arise within the church body itself. Is that not true? If we live very long at all, we've experienced some of that, and it's sad. But here, Paul writes, if, if there be any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies. I read through that and I think, well, what do you mean if? Of course there is consolation in Christ. Of course there is comfort of love in Christ. Of course there is fellowship in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit with a capital S. Of course there are mercies. So if those things exist, Paul challenges the body at Philippi, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The Greek word for comfort is also often is believed to be paraklesis, which means strengthening, helping, helping and making strong. I thought of sort of like J.B. Weld. You put two different parts together. There's a chemical response that takes place, and it hardens and becomes firm and strong and useful. We take many different parts of the body of Christ together and put them in the body in the church. We become stronger and useful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As far as consolation, it was written that the Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, God loved us and has given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. The sharing of things in common, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, sharing of things in common is is not as the Hutterites do with our wealth and money and our income and we just have this group of people that each have their own allotment of, of sort of a, um, I lost the word of the governing. Communism. communism, yes. Not of that, but of the Spirit. Communion, not communism. Communion of the Holy Spirit and our communication our distribution of of the heart to each other. Koinonia means we bear each other's burdens and restore each other gently. It's been said that a healthy church is the best way to spread the gospel. There were two words, kurgma and koinonia. Kurgma meant proclamation. Koinonia means fellowship, communion. It requires both, a combination of both. We proclaim that Christ is Savior, we proclaim that he saves souls. We proclaim the love of God to take us to heaven, to draw us to him through Jesus Christ. But if we don't live in fellowship with each other, if that's marred, what testimony do we have for, for a lost world around us? The church of Christ is called out in a part to be distinctively different from the world around us. The Bible Describes the church in, in different ways. One, as a family, a building made of living stones. I like that thought, not just stones, but of living stones. Referred to as a bride and as a body. And as a body, we function together and feel each other, the pain and the rejoicing. If there's any affection and mercy, Jesus is the prime example and giver of these traits. Verse 3 speaks of strife and vain glory. can be present in the church body. It has been before, it will be again. But yet, how is it that strife and vain glory are, are less than lowliness of mind? Jesus is that king upon a donkey. With a thorn crown on his brow. He lived out a perfect example of, of humility, yet strength in that humility. We think of the different backgrounds of the believers again in the church. Lydia, it, it says in Acts that the men had gathered on the riverside and there was women there for another purpose and they were sharing with them why they were there. And it said that Lydia's God opened Lydia's heart. You know, the church is God's. And we're in the church because of God the Father, because of His call. I thought about how the men could have been there thinking about their mission saying, That lady over there, she has she has some influence on the city. If we can get through to her, boy, we can really get this gospel to spread. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that they were speaking and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. It was the Lord's doing. It was God's doing. They wouldn't have been there in the first place if it wasn't for God. They would have been on the backside of Asia somewhere where they weren't supposed to be. They were tender to the Spirit and to its calling. And Lydia was too. Perhaps the girl exploited in the prison guards and soldiers. We read in the Sunday school lesson too, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. We do well to keep that in mind and in heart. We're here because God has chosen us and we just live out a response to his word, to his calling. I also like to think and to look into verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. There's a four-letter word in there also. It does not say only. It does not say look, let every man look only on the things of others. It's like the thought of if we look in a the mirror, there's a person with an unending soul of high value, greater value than the world looking back at us, that we're a person too. But it's a natural state for us to care for ourselves, to look out for ourselves. We're encouraged also to look out for the things and the needs of others. Where does this come from? Well, verse 5 says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the source of this this mindset. In verse 3, speaking of in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. It was shared by an individual that in a setting such as that, you have a group of people where everyone's looked up to and no one's looked down on. I think we've shared that before, but it's, it's a powerful thought. That this comes from Christ, that we look out not only For ourselves, but also for the things and the needs of others and the value of the body of Christ. That we care for each other's souls. We sing a song often bigger than all my problems, bigger than anything, bigger than any mountain that I may or may not see. God is bigger than all problems we as a body might face either internally or externally, or as an individual, problems that we might face internally or externally. God is bigger. Though we're here today with different backgrounds and the church gathers with people of different backgrounds and diversity of gifts. Now we as Paul also live that Christ be magnified individually and collectively as a body that he be magnified among us. That his work and his name not be marred. The backsides of our pasture, the backsides of our homes that it, that it all show the glory of God. Live with committed citizenship a kingdom, citizenship. Our home is heavenly, whether we're on earth, whether we're finally called home, as Paul lived, as Paul thought, as Paul taught. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're gods here, we're gods there through Jesus Christ.